0: I'm David Moscroff. Welcome to Open to Debate, brought to you by Interact. In the United States, the votes have been cast. In some jurisdictions, they are still being counted, despite the best efforts of President Trump to stop it, but counted they will be. The presidential election was closer than many expected, despite Joe Biden winning more votes than any contender in U.S. history. We are left with questions about the Biden campaign strategy, polling, and the state and future of American elections and democracy. For now, we simply ask, what just happened, America? My guest on this episode of Open to Debate is Stephen D'Souza, New York correspondent for CBC News. So let's start with what happened, or at least what we think happened. You know, what do you make of the results? I mean, we're, we're recording on Thursday, we're still watching the recounts. Uh, What do you make of the results, what we expected, and what we
1: saw? You know, I think it's interesting that we saw kind of what we expected in terms of the real divide between who showed up on election day being majority Republicans and who mailed in their ballots being Democrats. And I think the biggest surprise really is just how much support the president got across the country, across the board, really. I mean, this campaign was going to be always going to be a referendum on Donald Trump and the Biden campaign sort of made it about Trump's handling of the coronavirus. And it really came down to how people felt about Donald Trump. And, you know, he got more votes than he did last time around. And in areas like I'm in Pennsylvania right now, and a lot of areas he did well in Pennsylvania, he's done even better than before. And so I think just the stark divide in this country that, you know, no matter who wins, it's increasingly looking at this point as we speak now that uh, Joe Biden could end up taking things, but it's going to be incredibly close. And I think just the fact that things are so divided in this country and that this wasn't a complete repudiation of the president uh, really says a lot. And it's going to leave a lot of uh, questions open for, for people across this country as they move forward, regardless of who ends up as, as president.
0: Yeah, I was going through the exit poll data today, and it was it was remarkable that, you know, I mean, turnout is about is going to be way up. It looks like turnout might be as high as it was since 1960, higher than 1960. Uh, but, you know, largely those who voted Republican in 2016 voted Republican again. Ditto Democrats. Although those who didn't vote seemed to really turn out uh, as well. and And those broke overwhelmingly Democrat. Um, you know, I think which says something about why people are, are turning out. But in the actual, like, mechanics of the of the collecting, the casting, the collecting, the counting. I mean, do we see any surprises? Anything that stood out to you
1: as particularly unusual? You know, it's interesting because a lot of voting groups uh, were watching things very closely, and in the days leading up to the election, there were fears of voter intimidation at the polls and uh, perhaps. Po- potentially violence at the polls and uh, officials in Philadelphia where we were uh, based on election night uh, were really concerned that there may be voter suppression, that people may show up at the polls and intimidate people and prevent people from from showing up. And none of that really materialized. Uh, A lot of the watchdog groups that we spoke with afterwards said that you know, there were some issues here and there with language access, and, and this is, uh, now I'm speaking in Pe- about in Pennsylvania specifically, but um, you know, there were some issues with language access, and in some cases they had some sheriff deputies who were you know, in their full uniforms that some people thought w- was a little uh, intimidating. But, uh, overall they said things went relatively smoothly across the country. I mean, I don't think there were a lot of cases of uh, of problems with the polls. I mean, we saw small things here and there with machines that may have broken down. And I think one of the challenges now is with social media. Small elections get magnified and washed through the lens of, uh, of conservative or left-wing media and get blown sometimes out of proportion. What effect they may really have on the overall uh, election? And so I think overall, you know, there might have been little points here and there, but the sense I got from people is that this wasn't really uh, this was this was a, a relatively smooth election, given all of the hurdles, you know, with the coronavirus and you know the huge number of mail ballots that were coming in. Things have gone relatively smoothly so far.
0: Yeah, I mean, ahead of the election, I saw. I mean, you saw the White House erect. Uh, fe- I mean, effectively a wall. You saw, you know, lots of boarding up of businesses around D.C. and outside of of D.C. It seems like the concern now is that uh, the the violence that a lot of folks worried about, if it's going to materialize, might materialize now as the battle over counting happens rather than
1: casting. Yeah, you know, last night in Maricopa County in Arizona, we saw uh, a group of Trump supporters outside one of the county offices, and it's an open carry state. And so, you know, it was just a handful of people. But, you know, that's a bit of a flashpoint there. Um, nothing so much in Philadelphia where we were, although, you know, it's an interesting tension in a city like Philadelphia where last week police shot uh, an African-American man with mental illness who was carrying a knife uh, named Walter Wallace Jr., And there were a lot of protests in the streets. Then there were you know, riots and there was a lot of looting. And so stores were boarded up there and the National Guard is there. And so where we were based uh, at the convention center where the count is taking place, just a a block away is City Hall and some federal buildings and municipal buildings. And so you had heavily armed National Guard soldiers standing at attention. And it gave a very eerie feeling that reminds you that in addition to all of the tension and all of the fears of potential violence around the election, there is still the undercurrent of social tension around racial injustice and policing across the country that we saw throughout the summer that is still very much at the surface and could be, you know, could ignite at any moment. And yesterday, uh, Wednesday, there was uh, the release of body camera footage from the Walter Wallace Jr. shooting that we we were concerned could ignite things on the streets. And even the protests we saw in Philadelphia, it was a mix of, Voting right, voter rights groups who wanted to see every vote counted in the ballot and the elect, sanctity of the election protected mixed in with people protesting Black Lives Matter protesters as well. So it's such a bubbling cauldron and an eerie mix of things going on in this country at this moment that it's really hard to predict when things could ignite and when, when violence could potentially break out.
0: I mean, looking beyond that, I mean, assuming that you know, again, we're we're talking about this. I'm still waiting to see what what happens, uh, but I, I think people are already beginning to look ahead. I mean, we saw in the lead up to the election a lot of questions about whether or not the uh, integrity of postal balloting would be respected. Um, if if anything, if if there were any electoral regularities, it seems that it was the postal office, uh, the postal service, not delivering legitimately cast ballots in time uh looking forward do you see any efforts to try to rebuild um, you know some of that postal capacity but also to protect to protect the integrity uh, symbolically and in, in the practice of u.s electoral institutions because i mean while there was no evidence that that there's any fraud and plainly there isn't um there has been plainly damage done to electoral integrity nonetheless um, by officials who were were trying to undermine it. So
1: do do you see any
0: efforts to try to sort of rebuild that integrity?
1: Yeah, you know, I just want to say it was interesting talking to voters how much the fear over what was happening with the post office was driving voter behavior because, you know, people wanted to vote by mail because they wanted to avoid long lineups at the at the polling stations on election day. But what ended up happening was there were lineups before that with either people dealing with issues relating to their mail-in ballot or people lining up at early ballot sites or right. dropping off their ballots. And from the people I spoke with, the primary driving factor behind that was their fear that the post office wasn't going to get, things in t- get there in time and not just because of, uh, you know, delays, but because of, as you say, the bureaucratic and the administrative interference. And, I think a lot depends on what the ultimate result is. If, you know, there is a Biden administration, where they begin to repair some of the damage that's being done, what positions, uh, in terms of positions that they have control over, will they seek to overhaul, and how those try to build that trust back again. Because, you know, when you you think about an election in institutions, I don't think anyone would have had on their bingo card the post office as one that could be damaged. Right. Uh, (laughs) <laughs> leading up to leading up to the election I mean it's just one of those many things in 2020 that we did we didn't think were, would happen and so there is a lot of work to be done I think a lot of it and we'll probably get into this a little bit more but a lot of it is who ends up being president but and if it is a biden administration something we'll probably talk about more is the limitations that they will be on them given that it doesn't seem that they will have control of the Senate more, mm-hmm. most likely they won't and so you have a mitch McConnell a Republican-controlled Senate that's going to have a grasp and control over what a pres- potential President Biden may or may not be able to do.
0: I'm curious. I mean, I've been talking about this a lot lately. I mean, in Canada, we have Elections Canada, a federal nonpartisan agency that reports to the legislature. In the U.S., you have 50 states that make up 50 sets of rules based on partisan legislatures and governors Uh, you you know if you're designing a system i i think ours is objectively better and there's lots of evidence to support that but i'm curious if, if you on the ground you know saw any confusion among voters who who uh were getting different messages uh or had a hard time navigating the intricacies of their state balloting rules
1: well here yeah here's i mean just to give you more math on that, you know, you said 50 states with 50 different rules. Even within those states, counties have different rules, right? Right. So in in Pennsylvania, I think it was 67 counties. And so people here talk about 67 different types of elections taking place. And I mean, we were at a drop-off box in uh, Norristown, just outside of Philadelphia. And a guy who who requested a mail-in ballot, but he lives in Maryland, he's registered in Maryland, but lives in Pennsylvania thought he could just drop off his ballot in Pennsylvania and found out eventually he couldn't do that. And so oh. a really good example of the differences in how the elections are are run and just even how the, the 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 counting of the ballots are being done is you know I was in Philadelphia and we were at the convention center where the main count was being done for Philadelphia County which is the city of Philadelphia the biggest county in all of Pennsylvania. It was being done at the convention center in one of the halls. We were allowed to set up in a different hall, which was about two city blocks away. And so when they gave us a look inside the counting operation, we had to be escorted by a city of Philadelphia official, go through two layers of security, and then we were still kept behind a barrier about 10, 15 meters away from... Where the actual counting and sorting was taking place and we were there for like 10-15 minutes got some shots weren't able to talk to anyone and then you will see other reporters in in atlanta they're standing with the people counting right over their shoulder they could literally you know see see closely and almost reach out and touch them and so it just gives you a sense of just the different layers of security the different ways that uh the election is being handled and the counting and the sorting is being handled in different jurisdictions
0: and moving beyond the, the election and the counting itself to, you know, who was supporting whom and why, I mean, you know, Trump outperformed, as you mentioned, outperformed expectations. I mean, he increased, for instance, his support among a handful of groups, including white women and, and those in the LGBTQ plus community, even as Biden won more votes than any other presidential contestant in U.S. history. So I, I'm curious how it is that, that Trump manages to appeal to, to so many people but also to groups that you might not expect him to appeal to or, you know, appeal to so well.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, when we talk about Trump, we have to, if we can set Donald Trump aside for one second and think about the U.S. political context, people forget that this country still has a very large segment of the population that is conservative, believes in, you know, less government, lower taxes, uh, you know, the, the traditional things that, conservatives believe in. And so even though Donald Trump is the face of that and has taken up so much of the oxygen and the attention, there are still people that that's fundamentally what it comes down to for them on a day-to-day basis. And so they're willing to look past a lot of the things that may give people pause about Donald Trump because there are specific issues in their mind that will, that, you know, he will address. So, for example, of course, the evangelical community, the pro-life movement, that's something that they can say, you know, this is, we, we know we will get what we want on, on this front. Uh, you know, a lot of people just look at the economy and say, you know what, under Donald Trump, before the pandemic, he was cutting taxes, cutting regulation. That's what I need in my job, in my life, in the suburbs where I am. Things are going well, better than they were perhaps in the past. So that's good enough for me. And, you know, the noise of the tweeting and the, the comments and all the other stuff he does, I don't really need to pay attention to that. The other thing I think that often gets overlooked as well is just how divided and isolated, I guess maybe isolated is not the best word, but, you know, the two. there's two very different echo chambers when it comes to how people consume media in this country. And, you know, Fox, there's the Fox News viewers, but then there's also people on Facebook conservative talk radio, and if you're consuming that side of things, you're getting a very different picture of the Trump presidency and Donald Trump the man and people watching and consuming the Washington Post, the New York Times, and I you know, I'll just tell you one quick story about when I was driving through Pennsylvania once and I was listening to uh, Sean Hannity on talk radio, and he was going on and on about a former Obama official who was trying to undermine the Trump presidency and this was a couple of years ago and it was, you know, it was his huge controversy in his mind. And he went on for about an hour about it. And I remember thinking to myself, I hadn't really heard much about this. And so I went, but I got to my hotel, driving across Pennsylvania at the end of the night. I Googled this, this, this official's name. And it turned out she wasn't really in the news. And what he was talking about was something that had been debunked probably about a month ago. But if that's all you're listening to, and that's all you're paying attention to, that's that's, The view you're getting of what's happening. and You you don't don't see Donald Trump as somebody who is bumbling in the economy or the coronavirus uh, response. What you're seeing is a president under attack by a deep state or the media. And so you're getting a very different view of politics, and that colors how people view the presidency. So when people say, well, look at the numbers of the coronavirus, and that obviously Donald Trump shouldn't be allowed to run the country, that has a big stake in how different communities support the president. And I mean no community is a monolith as well, right? So it's you know, it's always going to be people of different uh, views within within each community. So that I think I think that explains in part why someone in Canada may look at what Donald Trump does and say, Oh, this is obviously somebody who needs to you know shouldn't be in the White House, but then a large segment of the population in the US doesn't see it that way. And you know, that's that's partly explains why that is.
0: Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the you know there's a book from a few years ago by a couple of political scientists, um, Christopher Aiken and Larry Bartels, called "Democracy for Realists," and they do a very good job of of arguing that a lot of partisan support, political support, and and therefore electoral outcomes in the United States are based on sort of social identity groups uh, that that cut across. Uh, different other different markers right is that you know it, it ultimately although not not universally uh, often comes down to you know partisan identity that's shaped by a lot of things and and i think we sometimes forget how strong of a force that partisanship is especially in canada where it's just not quite as strong right yeah, mm-hmm.
1: yeah and i think yeah that's a good yeah that's that's a good way to sum up that you know it is really a partisan identity first and then you know, if you look at who's in the White House and who you're voting for, you kind of pick and choose what you need to do. And, and I think, you know, we're, we're paid to follow what takes place every day and every tweet and every wrinkle and controversy. The average person has a family to consider their job to look at and isn't always paying attention. And things like the, uh, the Russian interference scandal and the, and the impeachment may play highly in people's minds in, in Washington. But on Main Street often, I mean, it sounds kind of cliche, but on Main Street, sometimes that's not people's main concern, and so uh, that goes a long way to explaining sometimes the divide that we see in the country.
0: Yeah, and I certainly don't blame them for that. I mean, it, you know, it, if you're worried about your job or your pension, your healthcare, that stuff seems like it's coming from Neptune, right? And for all intents and purposes, might as well be.
1: Yeah, and I mean, I just just add one quick thing. I mean, I can't, we can't also discount the poisoning of the uh, the media environment by the president in terms of his attacks on certain media outlets to the point where, you know, if the New York Times reports something, a lot of people may just look at it as, as an attack on the president as opposed to something perhaps of like a legitimate concern. You should pay attention to it, So,
0: yes, yeah, right, right. Um, speaking out, I mean, so, you know, Again, we're watching the recounts, at the, the, the counts, the counts. Uh, at the moment, it seems like Biden has far more paths to victory than, than Trump does and is, on balance, I would say favored to win. Uh, this this airs tomorrow, so we're recording on Thursday. This comes out Friday, so it's possible something has changed. But assuming Trump loses, he becomes a lame duck president. He's got between November and the inauguration in January – uh, there are concerns that he's going to use that transition period to make trouble. Um, I, I'm, you know, What do those concerns look like, and, and do you think they're plausible?
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, the legal route and the lawsuits that are sure to come and the recounts that may be coming as well, I think, are a big uh, concern. And that could really soak up and, and take up a lot of the oxygen in the, the period between now and inauguration. And I think the biggest thing that, and what the results have told us is that you know, Trump, as a political force within the Republican Party, is certainly not going away anytime soon. And, you know, I mean, there's always there's already sort of rumblings that he may talk about running again in 2024 if he loses. And I think just the specter of him as a force is just not going to go away. And how that drives the narrative of debates about policy and goals that uh, a Biden administration would have is something that we're going to have to really keep an eye on. Uh, in between, in that time, and so, you know, any anyone on the Democratic side who thought, you know, just a vote for the Democrats and a win by the Democrats would would make it all go away, you know, probably w- w- was was dreaming in Technicolor because that's certainly not going to happen, and and it's not not no, nothing in this country is going to change change overnight as a result of this election.
0: Right, the issues are are demic, right? I mean, they're they're deep in in the fabric of the of the country, and and. I, I'm thinking back to, I mean, there's a book we, uh, on this podcast, we talked to Robert Lieberman, who co-wrote the book, uh, Four Threats. And he, you know, him and his co-author, Suzanne Mettler, basically said, look, there are four types of threats that recur in the U.S., have re- been recurring constantly since 1790. This is the first time all four of them have happened at once. Um, there, there are a few different things, polarization, executive aggrandizement, inequality, and a battle over who belongs. But, you know, I, it's not like you can just elect a Democrat who, by the way, has to deal with a Republican Senate run by Mitch McConnell, of all people, and just say, okay, well, we're going to end that. (laughs) You know, by by doing what, by talking about how we're the United States of America, not the red-blue states. I mean, it's a lot more complicated than that, obviously.
1: And you mentioned income inequality. I think that's a big issue as well that drives a lot of people's fears and sort of is the undercurrent of a lot of issues that people have. And uh, I don't think that gets enough attention. Uh, I don't think that should get attention as well um, in terms of the overall sort of... Uh, I guess fear fear maybe is, is one way to put it, but just, you know, the economic anxiety that people fear face, you know, that feeds into fears around immigration and, and, uh, and crime and law and order and those sort of things. And so it is, as you say, you know, these four sort of factors coming into play all at once and simply you know soaring rhetoric about being uh, one country is not going to is not going to is not going to solve any of those problems
0: shifting to the sort of quadrennial question uh, what about the polls now i mean i i think we'll be sort of digging into this for some time to come and it could very well be that things look different in a couple of days than they do now but do you have any sense of of what the you know apparent or immediate disconnect between the polls and the outcomes uh, represents. I mean, what was going on there? Yeah,
1: I mean, it's one of those yeah, as you say, quadrennial questions about the polls, and I mean, I'm sure there are people who are going to break it down much more succinctly in terms of how accurate things were and not. And I've, one question I've always had is about the the shy Trump or the silent Trump supporters, because in speaking. One thing that really struck me was I was in um, eastern Pennsylvania, sort of in the Northeast, which is Trump country, and a lot of the supporters there I spoke to, Trump supporters, felt that they were maligned and sort of under attack for supporting the president to the point where they didn't want to put Trump stickers on their vehicle or you know really tell people often that they were Trump supporters because they're worried about the backlash, and they would say to me that you know there's a strong segment of people. That will come out and support the president that you're not hearing from, and I've read, of course, pollsters saying that you know we've taken that into account and we're trying, we've we've tried to adjust for that. And then there's some pollsters who argue that that fact that isn't even a factor, and I'm not sure if I buy their reasoning. There was something about you know if people are shy, they're more likely to talk to an automated polling machine than a real person, and some of the justifications that pollsters give for sort of discounting the shy Trump theory, I wasn't. I'm not quite sold on. So I think there is still a large segment of the population that pollsters aren't quite reaching or getting. And maybe it means that they have to go back again and look at their models. And last time around, the problem in places like Pennsylvania was that they weren't accounting for uh, non-college educated white males, that those weren't being weighted enough. Uh, Who knows what segment they're going to look at this time around and say that that wasn't weighted highly enough. And I mean, in the end, Part of the argument that pollsters have is that, you know, the top level numbers that people see are often backed up by all of these other caveats that most members of the public don't read and give, you know, pause for the top level numbers. But at the end of the day, I think maybe even as, as reporters in, in, uh, in public in general, we shouldn't be relying on polls as much to give us a gauge of how the country is feeling and we should move away from that overall. So I, it's It's one of those ones that I don't think is going to be answered, and polls always provide sort of an easy way to look at to gauge how the country is doing, but I think relying on them too much is always is always as a crutch is always a bad thing to do and it just takes a lot of hard work to get a temperature of the country and even with the election now and as of we are taking the temperature of the country in the most fundamental way possible, we still don't have a true sense with the votes still being counted so Yeah, there's no easy answers there. There'll be a lot of introspection uh, in the days and years to come.
0: Yeah, and even if the the national polls get things right, you know, if the state level polls, you know, which have smaller uh, samples, are off, well, then it's going to it's going to deviate, right? And the same thing is about the margin of error. And I think this is the other thing we don't really talk about margins of error enough. (laughs) Yeah, one
1: of my pet peeves is when they say you know somebody's ahead three points or four points or five points. Depending on this on the study, that's within the margin of error. I mean, a five point margin of error is is not a good sample size. But yeah, I don't think margin of error is something that is reported enough and understood enough by the public as a factor that should be taken into when they hear that, some of some the, of the poll numbers that are thrown out there.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm all for sort of diminishing uh, the attention that we we you know play or pay to polls. But I don't love our chances of succeeding. With that, anytime soon. No, no, neither do I. <laughs> um, uh, now, sort of moving into the last couple of minutes, I, I'm, I'm curious, uh, you know, how we ended up in this situation where we we're waiting on results. I mean, I know there's a lot that went into this. There were some states where they could count early absentee ballots or some states where they couldn't. But, um, you know, it's not unprecedented to be waiting for results. States will certify the results when they certify them. They've got a different timetables to do that. But you know, are there any top-level takeaways about how we ended up in a situation where we're waiting?
1: Yeah, I think part of it is, uh, you know, the the mechanics of the elections and that we've been spoiled in that the media has become so good at getting those projections on election night and the results have made it such that that's been possible. But, you know, the, the pandemic obviously is a huge factor, the, the massive number of mail-in ballots. Uh, and also just the fact that, I mean, the president early on, was casting doubt about mail-in ballots. I think, overall, state legislatures are going to have to look at some of the laws in terms of how they count and what's best, and I don't think anyone could have foreseen the pandemic and the impact it would have had as well. So this may be just an outlier and may not be indicative of things to come in the future, but, you know, we will have to wait and see what what impact this has going on down the road.
0: I want to close off on on this question. Uh, You know, assuming biden wins Uh, has there been any indications of what the early policy agenda might look like what would you know what we might expect in the immediate days and weeks to come and whether or not there'll be serious obstruction from congress especially the senate
1: yeah this is going to be the biggest story moving forward now and it's something we haven't been able to talk about because of all the focus on the results but you know for people who are hoping that a Biden presidency would be a pathway towards a more progressive policy agenda, you know, the AOC wing of the party, the the Green New Deal, all of those sorts of things, they're going to have a bit of a reality check now that the Democrats didn't do anywhere as well as they hoped in the House or in the uh, Senate, because Mitch McConnell is going to control, the Republicans are going to control the Senate, and we're going to have to see a Biden presidency, where they're going to have to adjust their agenda to work with that Republican-controlled Senate. And how that works in this polarized environment is going to be a big question. And that works all the way down from policy to just uh, appointment, cabinet appointments. Republican-controlled Senate is going to put a lot of restrictions on what they may be able to accomplish in terms of of their agenda.
0: And that would include judges too, right? I mean, you know, getting cabinet members approved is one thing, but I I would imagine getting judges is going to be tricky too. Yeah,
1: for sure. That's yeah, that's, you know, I think Democrats have seen the Republican playbook in terms of uh, how they really focused on putting Republican friendly judges in positions across the country uh, up and down, up and down the the ticket. So I think that's going to be incredibly difficult, uh, difficult as well.
0: Well, I mean, that that leaves us with a lot to ask, but no time to ask it, uh, at least for now. But of course, the counting continues, and maybe that'll be different by the time folks are listening to this, but but maybe it will not. Uh, so I, I want to start by thanking you, Stephen Sousa, very much for, for joining me today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, my pleasure entirely. And as, as always, my thanks to uh, the folks who make this show possible, Mira Ahmad, Luke Gilmore, Aaron Reynolds, and everyone who's listening from wherever they may be listening thanks so much for tuning in once more and we'll talk to you again in a couple of weeks